दृष्टो विराटाचाजिताशक्तिपदे सौभद्रच महाबाशंगादत्मुदृदक सघोषोदात्रराष्ट्रनाशक्तिवीचवाकुमुलोनादयत्तिदृष्ट्वात्रराष्ट्रान्कृद्वज्रवृत्ते अर्जुनवचेनोरुभ्यमेक्षुदेताेहमोटुकाेहमुद्यमेमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेहमेह
my obeisance. <clears throat> the first chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita starts on the morning of the fateful day before the commencement of the great Mahabharata war. The two armies had drawn up in battle formation. The horses were fresh and restive. The men were tense and eager. Trumpets and conks were blowing. Men were shouting orders. Flags were flying. Drums were clamoring. And the stage was set for the final scene in the mighty drama of their lives. The grand climax which the cousins had been expecting and preparing for, for the major portion of their lives. This is the opening scene or setting for our spiritual book, Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Lord. The Lord has chosen to sing his song in the middle of the battlefield, not in the silence of a forest or the sanctity of a temple or the peace of an ashram or the sylvan glades of the Himalayas, but in the noise and clamor of battle. What is the reason for this peculiar choice of location? Was it deliberate or accidental? The Lord's doings, though mysterious, are never accidental. Everything has a plan and purpose. Nothing comes by chance, nor is it left to chance. So what is this divine purpose in choosing such a location? Before going into this, let us go one step further into the first chapter and see what transpires. Dhridharashtra, the blind king, father of the Kauravas, has a wise minister called Sanjaya, who had been given the gift of television by the sage Vyasa, the author of the Mahabharata. Sitting in their palace at Hastinapura, Sanjaya describes to the blind king in graphic detail all the happenings in the battlefront, much in the way of the modern cricket or football commentator. The Gita opens with Dhridharashtra's request to Sanjaya to describe the scene of battle. Dharmakshetre Kurukshetre Samaveda Yutsava Mamaga Pandavas Cheva Kimakurvada Samjaya Dhridharashtra 
Dhridrashtra asked Sanjaya, What did my sons and the sons of Pandu do? Assembled on the holy field of Kurukshetra, eager for a fight. Sanjaya described the scene of battle. He gives a swift portrait of all the generals on either side and the various activities going on. And then suddenly he is arrested by the arrival of the main characters of the drama on the scene. Arjuna, seated in his chariot, eager and ready for battle, with Krishna holding the reins in his steady hands, controlling the four white milky steeds who are straining at the bit and eager to charge into battle. Arjuna tells Krishna to take the chariot to the middle of the field between the opposing armies so that he can observe and get an overall view of the opposing army before the battle commences. Obedient to his role as the charioteer, Krishna, the Lord of all the worlds, obeys the commands of his friend and devotee and drives the chariot to this no man's land between the two armies. Arjuna, the mighty bowman of his age, turns round to survey the opposing army and sees not his enemies but his cousins, friends, relations, teachers, nephews and grandsires. A tremendous psychological revulsion sets up inside him, making his whole body almost swoon with the weakness of his emotions. And he tells Krishna that he cannot fight. His bow falls from his nerveless grasp and he himself crumbles to a heap at the back of the chariot, a useless specimen of humanity, weakened through emotion, incapable of correct thought or correct action. To him who was thus in such a pitiable condition, Krishna, his friend, philosopher, guide and God, pours out the marvellous spiritual instruction, the highest spiritual instruction which can be given to man, known as the Bhagavad Gita. There are two questions which perplex the mind of the reader at the very outset. The first is why such a great scriptural instruction should have been given on the battlefield. Surely the Lord could have chosen a more fitting background. Why not an ashram or forest or temple 
or any other place than a battlefield. The second question is why a great spiritual instructor like Lord Krishna should urge his disciple to such a violent action rather than encourage him in ahimsa or non-violence. Let us take the first question. The philosophy of the Gita is not for the weak or the coward who is afraid to face life as it is. It does not seek to teach an ethical sentimentalism which loves to look on nature as good and beautiful but refuses to face her grim and terrible mask, which loves to dwell on the beauteous form of Lakshmi but recoils from her visage as Kali. In fact, it is not a facile philosophy meant for the kindergarten student but for the postgraduate in spiritual life who is not afraid to face the repellent aspects of life and has the courage to admit that this also is God instead of hypothesizing the existence of a devil who appears to be more powerful than God himself since he can undo most of God's work. Unless we have the courage to face existence as it is, we will never be able to arrive at a solution to its conflicting demands. Harmony has to be achieved in and through the discord which we cannot deny. War and destruction seem to be the principle of not only our material lives but our mental lives as well. This is a battlefield of good and evil forces and man is placed in the center as it were of this field now swayed by the good now drawn by the evil and the evil forces as in the Mahabharata war appear to be far vaster than the forces of good like Arjuna, we stand in this no-man's land between the opposing forces, wondering how best to drive our chariots between them so that we can ultimately emerge victorious. Every moment man has to take some decision or other perplexed and torn between these warring forces in his own nature he knows not what he should do 
even within his physical body. There seems to be a mighty war raging between the attacking forces of germs, diseases, old age, and finally death. And the defending organism manfully trying to preserve the citadel and succeeding in the beginning and succumbing in the end. This is the allegorical representation of the background of the Gita. No other setting could have been as suitable for a gospel which teaches us how to survive and evolve spiritually even in the midst of the battlefield of life. The famous pictorial representation of the Bhagavad Gita is that of a chariot drawn by four restive horses in which are seated Arjuna and Lord Krishna holding the reins and turning round to face the despondent Arjuna. The chariot stands for the body of man with Arjuna as the Jivatma or the embodied soul seated within. The horses are the four aspects of the mind known as Manas, Buddhi, Ahamkara and Chitta rushing headlong onto the field of the sense objects which are beckoning to them from all sides. Arjuna is the representative of the evolved man faced with a violent crisis in his life which seems quite incompatible with his aspiration for a spiritual life or even for a moral life but he has sense enough to realize that by himself he is helpless to co combat the enormous forces of evil which threaten to overwhelm him and destroy the very foundations of his social and spiritual life and therefore he has given over the reins into the capable and willing hands of his divine master, lord and friend who restrains the straining steeds with the firm grip of his capable hands and steers the chariot through the dangerous battle with ease and protects and takes him who has surrendered to a great and final victory. This is the symbolism behind the picture of the chariot and the battlefield and the setting was not chosen at random. It has a great purpose and role 
to play in the understanding of the Gita's message. Now, let us take the first two words of the Gita. They are Dharmakshetra, Kurukshetra. Dharmakshetra means the field of righteousness and Kurukshetra is the battlefield of the Kurus. How can a battlefield also be a field of righteousness? By its very nature, a battle is founded on the rock of unrighteousness. Then what is the point of bringing these two words in close proximity to each other at the beginning of the book? In ancient Sanskrit literature, every word as well as its position was chosen with care. So these two opposites coming close to each other at the very commencement of the teaching have a special message. To understand it, we should know the meaning of the word Kshetra. It means field. And in the 13th chapter of the Gita, Lord Krishna gives a novel interpretation of this word. We will just touch upon the meaning here, for it has a lot to do with our understanding of these two words. He tells Arjuna that this body of ours is known as the field or kshetra. And on a larger scale, he says that this entire universe or field of action of all creatures is also known as kshetra. This body is the individual field of action and the universe is the universal field. These fields are also kurukshetras or fields of battle in the beginning. But the evolved man can make them into dharmakshetras or fields where righteousness prevails. The universe is a field of tremendous activity, conflict and warfare, as also our bodies. The world we live in is a fierce, dangerous and destructive world. In this devouring world, man moves forward precariously balanced between the evil and good forces within him and without him. At every step he takes, something is crushed or broken, whether he will it or not. However he may believe in ahimsa or non-violence, yet 
every breath of life is also a breath of death. The chances are that any breath he draws may well be his last. And with every breath, he kills a million microscopic bacteria. As a baby, he enters this Kurukshetra of life with a cry, having passed many hours in the narrow passage of the uterine tube and many months cramped and twisted inside the mother's womb. Then he plays out his drama of life on a stage which is not of his own choosing and eventually makes his final exit again with a cry of pain and fear, not knowing what is in store for him. When we look at the birth of our external world, we find that from a mighty clash of material forces, everything in the world, including the earth, seems to have been born. There seems to be no construction here without a previous destruction. The eater eating, being eaten, seems to be the formula of existence. But surely this cannot be the only picture of life. This repellent aspect of life must hold in itself the secret of its final harmony. The Gita tells us that even though the outward aspect of this world is that of existence advancing through struggle and slaughter, yet there is an inward aspect which is that of the universal being fulfilling himself in a vast creation in and through the destruction. Kurukshetra is also a dharmakshetra where righteousness shall prevail. But before we reach this dharmakshetra, we will have to struggle and fight our way through Kurukshetra. How can one do this without staining our hands with blood? How can we do battle without sinning? For battle we must, within ourselves and outside us, this battle has to be fought on a thousand different fields before we can achieve the utopia of our dreams. It is not enough to preach universal love 
when we are incapable of loving even our neighbor. It is not enough that our own hands remain clean for the law of strife and destruction to die out of this world. The love which we preach about has itself been constantly a power of death in the history of the world. Even the love of God, when reflected through the medium of the human ego, has been responsible for so much of slaughter. In the name of the Prince of Peace, the bloodiest wars in the history of mankind have been fought. So unless man learns to realize the divinity within himself, no amount of preaching about love and non-violence can save him from the nightmare of hate and violence which he has created for himself. The Gita teaches us how to realize this divinity and turn the Kurukshetra into a Dharmakshetra, both within him and without. There is a law that operates in the external world, just as there is a law that operates in the field of our bodies, which integrates the apparently conflicting powers outside as it integrates the cells of our body into a wholeness. Every cell in our body is different from the other. Every thought is different from the other. Yet there is a law which integrates the psychic structure as well as the physical structure, both individually, universally and cosmically. This is the cosmic dharma or law of righteousness. So while there is activity, movement, destruction and transformation, there is also organization, balance and harmony right from the atom up to the solar system and even beyond that. When we come to think of it, the miracle of life is the fact that the human being continues to maintain his balance despite the overwhelming forces of destruction arranged against him. And this is because Kurukshetra is first and foremost a Dharmakshetra. The battlefield of life is first and foremost a field for the play of divine justice. So long as we are willing 
or even unwilling warriors on this battlefield. We are pulled hither and thither by the restive horses of our chariots, over which we have no control, not knowing our goal or nature or destiny, helpless victims in the hands of the blind mechanism of nature, enmeshed in her threefold strands of sattva, rajas and tamas, prey to every passing mood and whim, unable to control our thoughts, our bodies or our lives. The Bhagavad Gita shows us the way out of this slavery into the freedom of a life divine. The first chapter is known as Arjuna Vishada Yoga or the Yoga of Arjuna's Despondency. With the awakening of man's higher powers of reasoning, there arises in him a strong recoil and revulsion to the grim picture of life. He feels a strong disgust and a great desire to escape from these terrible realities and take to a life of seclusion. No longer can he participate in this fight for survival. Far better to be killed unresisting than jump into the fray and kill in order to save himself. A deep sorrow overwhelms him and he falls into a mood of terrible despair from which he cannot arouse himself and which, if left to itself, would grow and take him further and further away from that very spirituality for which he was craving. This is the picture of Arjuna. At the beginning of the Gita, in the first chapter, the picture of the man ready for further evolution, filled with revulsion for the work he is being forced to do, since he thinks it's demeaning and devolving. Sorrow, if left to itself, is a tamasic attitude which would eventually bring ruin to the person who indulges himself in it. But a righteous sorrow, if used in the proper way, can prove to be a gold for further evolution. Luckily for Arjuna, the Lord has seen, had been his constant companion since youth, and he was ready at the moment and took the opportunity to raise him out of the lethargy of self-pity. At the end of the first chapter, Arjuna throws down his bow and quiver and sinks to the floor of the chariot, his mind 
filled with agony and indecision. This tamasic way of escaping from the stern call of duty is not befitting the Aryan fighter, and Lord Krishna rouses him from out of this unnatural lethargy to take up the duty which he has to do. Human motives are very mixed. We can never be sure, even within ourselves, of the true motives of our actions. Non-violence is very often made a mask for weakness and detachment for escapism. The Lord who can see into the hearts of all reads into Arjuna's mind and answers him in the second chapter in a way which is best fitted to bring out the best in him and raise him in the ladder of spirituality. The message of the Gita is addressed to the fighter, to the man of action, for as has been said before, life is a battlefield of Kurukshetra, through which each one of us has to learn to face and fight our way before we can reach the other side of Dharmakshetra. Hariyom Sadsad Om Asadoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Mridam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Putra, no, then a
And 